I'm afraid that one day it's me who loses control of his bowel movement. But even more than that, I'm terrified that somebody will dress me in a pair of docker khakis, goddamn pleats. I know that disability is a natural part of the human experience, that people with disabilities are not broke and don't need to be fixed. Hey there, and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. New episodes are released every Friday and we are in the middle of season number three dedicated to Grit Talks and the Best Of. And today we have two stories from the Best of 7 by 7 A curated virtual storytelling series. These stories are from the summer of 2020. The first, David Latham, who lives out in San Diego, California. He's got a seven-ish minute story. And the second, Arlene Malinowski, who lives in Chicago, Illinois. Hers is a little longer, around 12 minutes. I really like both of these storytellers and these stories. As you listen to them, see what you like about them, see what works, and use them. Apply them to your own stories. I know that's not always the easiest thing to do, but your stories can get better, much better. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second Story Slam, season number six, and Deja True 4, a braided storytelling experience, both Sunday evenings in February. And if you could take a moment and rate and review this podcast, if you listen on Apple, I would really appreciate that. It helps people find it, and I want more people to find it. Okay, David and Arlene, let's dive in. While I was at work, um, Dale had taken a shit in his pants. In Dale's defense, he's 85 years old, and he, he suffers with dementia and Alzheimer's. And I see Dale every week, a few times a week, in this facility that he lives in. And um, his family had hired me to keep him company, keep him feel safe. And a lot of times, for times like these, when Dale shits his pants, it's my job to help out. Honestly, I have no problem doing that. I have no problem changing his pants when he shits them because I know um, he can't do it himself. And there's always a question I ask of somebody I'm helping. I don't say out loud, but I say it to myself. And that is, would this person do this for me? So again, I have no problem doing that with somebody. I do have a problem though. I have a, I have a big problem with the pants that Dale's wearing on this particular day that he shit them. Dale is wearing this uh, pair of, of, of dockers, um, you know, the khaki-colored trousers. They're actually trousers, they're not even pants, they're trousers. They're khaki dockers with goddamn pleats in them. These are the pants you would wear for like a cubicle job, or um, some people um, think these are great for like a casual Friday at your, at your cubicle job, perhaps. But these pants are for people basically who have given up on life and all outward appearances. So, to be clear, I don't fault Dale for wearing these pants. I blame the person whose job it was earlier today to dress Dale. Because every year that I get older, I'm, I'm afraid that one day it's me who loses control of his bowel movements. But even more than that, I'm terrified 
that somebody will dress me in a pair of docker khakis with goddamn pleats in them. That's what I'm really afraid of. A few minutes later, I get Dale cleaned up and I get him out of the pants and I look in his closet for something to dress him in. And I see this perfect outfit. It's an Adidas tracksuit. It's, it's the black one with the white stripes and the logo. Most people can look all right in that, but Dale looks amazing. Like Italian GQ in this black Adidas tracksuit. Just looks so good in it. So I got Dale cleaned up and we head out of there. Dale's family that hired me doesn't know much about me outside of my interaction as a nursing assistant. But I have to confess, at least one time in my life, I was a hopeless liar, a junkie, and just a very incorrigible liar. Things you do to survive every day. So it's safe to say I was this full-time liar and a junkie that thought of nobody but himself. Because of this, for years, I've always felt misunderstood. I got to tell you, the worst thing um, for me living that way was this pure feeling of loneliness all the time. It's worse than jail. It's worse than withdrawal. It's worse than losing your friends. It's this feeling of loneliness. And there is no amount of dope anywhere that can call that, can take that away. So I often felt misunderstood. And again, in order to be um, a successful junkie, you have to be a good liar. And I was really bad at it. I was in the middle of telling this cop a terrific lie and he stopped me and he said, David, I don't think you're lying because you're not very good at it. And he was right. Dale and I stroll out to the dining room now in the facility that he's living in. Um, we sit down, we're gonna have dinner in about a half hour and something happens. And this happens as often as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's, it's the dementia comes out in the person. It starts slow. Dale starts to mutter something in this whisper, kind of like if you had lost your car keys and you swear to yourself, and you're like, where are them? And he's doing this over and over again, but Dale doesn't have any keys. There's something bothering him. And it gets a little worse. And he starts to um, clench his fists, his teeth, and he starts to pound on the table. And he's just saying over and over again, God damn it. Fucking God damn it. And I don't, I think the reason his family hired me is, is for times like this is to figure out what is going on with Dale right now. The best way I can help him is to just listen to him. And then he says it. It's what I've been listening for. He goes and says, my plane, my plane, I'm going to miss my fucking plane. Dale has been retired for 20 years. He doesn't have to be anywhere. But I do know um, that Dale, his whole life, those years where I spent wasting all my energy, being useless in life. During those years, Dale was running his own business, uh, taking care of his family, just doing the right thing that I had longed to do. So it makes sense. He thinks he's at the airport. So we're at the airport now. We're not in this facility. We're not having dinner. We're in this airport. Right now, I just want to help Dale make that plane. And he's mad. He's really, he's pissed. I missed my fucking plane. I'm a really bad liar, but I'm good at, maybe I'm good at improvising stuff. I said, no, Dale, you haven't. And I take his hand and I point at the clock. I said, it's 5.30. He said, so fucking what? I said, your plane leaves at 6.30. Look, and I take it in my back pocket and I take out an envelope and it's some mail that I picked up uh, earlier in the day. It was from my insurance company, but it looks like an airline ticket. So I open it up and I said, 6.30, still got an hour. Also in that same moment, I realized that my, my insurance is about to expire. But I let Dale know that we're gonna make the plane because we have the tickets. I have to back this up. 
how do you do that? And so I look at the janitor. I said, Dale, look, the luggage guy hasn't even loaded the luggage yet. And this guy is vacuuming the floor. And Dale says, okay. And then um, I point to the nurse in the, in the window of the, where they give medicine. I said, we still have to go see the, the, the stewardess and we'll check in at the flight desk, desk over there. And he calmed down and he starts to relax. And he looks at me. In Dale's room, he's got all these pictures of his whole life on the wall. He, and every other picture since he was a kid, right through his 80s, he's got this smile and I can't duplicate it, but it's really good. It's like this, it's this contentness. It's this, he could get into any concert or any building in the world if he just smiled like that at the front door and people go, they forgive him. And so Dale gives me that smile as if to say, hey, I'm sorry about that, that episode earlier on yelling at you. And, I, and before I can say it's cool, don't worry about it, he says, uh, thank, thank you, Henry. Um, Henry um, had died years ago. It's a relative of his. But I do know this much, is that I'm not gonna about to tell Dale that his, his Henry is dead. So I'm going to be Henry. And I say, you're welcome. Because for me to tell Dale that Henry was gone, well, I'd rather, I'd rather wear a pair of fucking khakis than ever do that in my life. Thank you, Mr. David Latham, who resides out in San Diego, California. Appreciate your story, sir. Next up, Ms. Arlene Malinowski, who lives in Chicago, Illinois. Enjoy. When I enter a room, a champagne aura emanates from my very being. My smile is so white bright that it's mistaken for the landing lights at O'Hare. My eyes smize. That's an American Next Top Model reference. My golden hair swings and flutters as if a wind machine is perpetually following me around. And people use the words vivacious and exuberant. They all wonder aloud, is she Christy Teigen's sister, older but just as pretty? On my way out the door, I don't say goodbye or thank you for the beautiful evening. I just disappear, leaving my host to wonder what happened. I duck into a waiting car as if the paparazzi is stalking me. And then I collapse. The smile evaporates to gray. My face droops. My eyes fall back into my head. And I am bone weary from the show. The sparkly Arlene Malinowski, happy-go-lucky show, because you are not allowed to show your mental illness in public, or, or so I believe. There is a place so down, so far down in your mind that you don't see color. That's where I am. It's early and it's slippery outside, and one of those ashen days in Chicago when the fog feels like a permanent guest on the road, I just move at a glacial pace. Sometimes one depression hour feels like a dog years. I flip open the visor and apply a slicker of raspberry shimmer lip gloss. I'm so exhausted that I look like phlegm. But phlegm who's wearing lipstick because lipstick can hide anything. You never see one of those actors who play sick characters wearing it, not even if they're Angelina Jolie. Besides, I have to look decent when I go to the doctors. Pretty people get better service, especially women. Look it up. Me. Me in another psychiatrist's office. I keep my eyes to the floor like the guilty one on Law and Order. 
this is my Roswell 51. I know, I know better. I have been a part of the deaf and disability community my whole life. As a hearing daughter of deaf parents, as a teacher, as an advocate and ally, I know that disability is a natural part of the human experience, that people with disabilities are not broke and don't need to be fixed. But I am shamed that this mental illness has really just brought me to my knees. And I am silent, even to the people who love me. Now, I've always prided myself on being a sunny, optimistic, and motivated person. I've even bragged about it the way those models brag about being able to eat whatever they want and still say delightfully emaciated. But then out of nowhere, depression just crawled into my basement window and, and I found him sitting there with his feet up on my nice new mushroom colored couch and he decided to stay. My new, my new psychiatrist looks like a professionally dressed Chilean sea bass. And in her office, I start weeping and it crashes out of me like the foamy white of Niagara Falls, but then I can't stop. And it comes from this place so violent and deep and primal. She says, perhaps we should check you in just for a few days, just to get you started on some meds. Is it like a spa? No. It's not like a spa. You see, because in my mind's eye, I saw a lush, green, dimly lit room with Anya playing in the background. And not ironically, I imagined women wearing thirsty robes, sitting on lounge chairs, waiting from group. What I didn't see was girl interrupted. See, that's the thing about major depressive disorder. You don't think rationally. Your reality is twisted. Your judgment isn't clear. So I take my first two pills. They're melon colored and shaped like heights. And I feel like a teenage girl waiting for her boyfriend to make our relationship Instagram official because I want these meds to work and to work fast. But they don't. I tell no one about this sinkhole except for Dan, my good and my kind husband who guards this secret like it's a magician's trick. We both know that crazy and unstable does not get hired, does not get invited to fabulous parties. We know that all crazy and unstable gets is judged and that shames the both of us. Meds are added and taken away and tweaked and tweaked again. There's pretty little yellow pills and rainbow capsules and ones that look like teensy hot dogs. Oh my God, I love them. And another one makes me feel like I'm on a tilt a world and I throw up for 24 hours straight. Some work a little, some not. I don't know anymore. My brain skates the charcoal edge of winter panic attacks just shake me by my throat. And then I just stop. I'd stop thinking. I stop moving. I stop being. I just can't anymore. Emails are left unread. Clothes with zippers and buttons and proper fit sit in the closet. The TV demands too much concentration but stays on like smoky flickering ghosts in the night. Phone calls run into voicemail. The bed becomes both my shroud and my sanctuary. I look into the mirror of my, my medicine cabinet. 
I've become invisible to even myself. When is it time to find a new doctor? Until she kindly says to me, I think we should wait until this lifts. Your body's been through so much. I don't know what else we should try right now. Please, please don't say that. Please don't tell me that there is nothing else we can do. Six weeks later, I get a perfunctory letter that she's moving to a city that's warm and sunny. She cheerfully wishes me good health. I hate her, that bitch. How are you? That question comes automatically from the voices and the mouths of others. Fine. I'm just fine. I reply, reply, smiling, bubbly pink. A dozen years of acting classes, money well spent, I think to myself. I am paralyzed. I cannot work. I cannot leave my house. I don't know how to ask for help. In the darkest of my soul, I, I dream about Sylvia Plath and bell jarring. I hard pills. I curse my electric oven. And then Dan does the unthinkable and betrays me. I hear him in the other room on the phone. She's clinically depressed. It's bad. We need to get her in to see someone now. I can't get an appointment anywhere. The breath is just knocked out of me. My head is swirling. Laura Gray, what are you doing? You can't. You promised. I was just having a bad moment. I had to tell someone. I'm scared for you. Don't you understand that they're going to tell everyone? He doesn't listen. He keeps calling and calling and calling. And then finally a brother, a friend of his brother connects him to a colleague who intercedes with a doctor who's an hour and 25 minutes away. And I'm in just like that. Dan says, he's a psychopharmacologist. They say he's a rock star. He's not taking any new patients, but he's making an exception for you, honey. I bite my tongue so hard that all I can see is the red behind my eyes. Don't you know what you've done? Everyone knows. And now you've ruined everything. I look around this new pastel waiting room and it feels like I'm in the middle of a pharmaceutical burning man. The patients rock and mutter and sweat and tremble and stare glassy eye and get up for cups and cups of water to quench their medicated cotton mouths. These, these are the last chance people. And I'm one of them. We wait for two hours. And then when we finally get into his office, it looks like, oh my God, it looks like a bomb hit. There is stuff everywhere. It looks like the inside of my brain. And the doctor, the doctor, he looks nice. The kind of guy you should have gone out with in college instead of chasing the bad boys who would make out with you at a party and then dump you for a girl named April at the same party. I hand him the history that Dan has so meticulously kept. And I tell him the dark side of calm, the gnawing at my brain is relentless. I can't do it anymore. All I want to do is go to sleep and never wake up again. And Dr. Last Chance leans in and he connects with my eyes and he says in a low, quiet voice, I know that you're in pain. We have lots of options to try. Lots 
and lots of alternatives. And then he starts naming off drugs and lists of combinations and maybe ECT. And when we're leaving, I throw my arms around him and I hug him hard and, and he hugs me back. Now, hope. Hope is a great gift and maybe the best of all gifts and that's what he gave me. I slowly start to come out of it. Depression like mine just doesn't go away. It leaves quiet and surreptitiously like the honey-colored light at dusk. But then word about my breakdown just spreads quickly and at full tilt. And nobody knows what to say, so they say nothing, at least to me. And I am humiliated, beat red. But once in a while, a tiny, shiny, unexpected thing happens. A silly card shows up in the mailbox. The phone rings and it's Karen Roth. Ken makes me apricot scones. David offers sympathetic murmurs. And then there, there are the others, the ones who lean in to whisper, me too. I have a mental illness too. And I wonder, why didn't I know this about you? Why didn't we know this about each other? It would have made everything so much easier. But each one of their kindnesses are like a long drink of water when I didn't even know I was thirsty. I had found my people, the ones who were there when I have a pocket of inky black depression and I can't wait to see my way out. Looking back, I realized that by loosening the shame, and releasing the secret out into the blue, that saved me. And that now I am free to name it and claim it and stand to be counted. And you know what? I don't wanna be Christy Teigen's older yet prettier sister. I wanna be Arlene, older but braver. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Arlene and David. Thank you both very much for your stories. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99 Second Story Slam, season number six, and Deja True 4. And of course, if you listen on Apple, I know I ask a lot, please rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it. I appreciate that. That's all for episode number 69. Boom.